The culmination to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians centers around the same event as did the four Gospels, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, where we discuss the Come Follow Me lessons in the Sunday School curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week's lesson, New Testament number 35, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. 1 Corinthians chapters 14 through 16. As always, should you care to email the show, send your questions about any topic under the sun. I will respond as best I can with whatever scripture I deem appropriate. Send those questions to gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And as always, your five-star reviews on Facebook and iTunes are very much appreciated and help other people to find the program. Uh, This week's question or this week's comment comes from Matt in Mesa, Arizona. He says, I enjoyed the lessons learned on the body of Christ and the church and how we are all a significant part. I immediately thought of an example of when church members who participate in professional sports have either good or bad performance and how I feel their pain or exuberance. I now know that it is because I'm also a member of the body of Christ with them. And uh, the reason I wanted to read this is because it made me laugh. As a North Central Utah dweller, I'm privy to the holy war, quote-unquote, that happens every year between the BYU and U of U football teams, and so that just happened last week. So we had a lot of pain and exuberance on either side, and as usually happens, uh, BYU, my alma mater, lost. Uh, And not being a sports fan, it doesn't affect me that much, but I certainly saw uh, my fair share of people for whom it was was very traumatic. Uh, And it is true that Knowing a public figure shares our faith makes it easier to empathize with their emotions. And I also think that we have to remember that the body of Christ should allow us to share the, to share the emotions of those, the pain and exuberance of those who are close to us, those in our ward family and in our earthly family, that we can reach out to them, share the pain, share their joys, share their celebrations, and in that way be part of the body of of Christ with those who are close to us, not only with those who share our faith. Thank you for that comment, Matt. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14 continues in a logical progression from 1 Corinthians chapters 11, 12, and 13. If you remember, they're talking about how church meetings should be conducted, and then the fact that there are a diversity of gifts, and then we're all part of the body of Christ, and all gifts should be respected, and more important than all the gifts of the Spirit is charity, right? That was the last week's lesson. The the climax of last week's lesson was talking about this wonderful gift of the love of Christ. And it's actually a continuation of that thought for Paul to then compare the two gifts of prophecy and of tongues. And so that's kind of the subject of chapter 14. 
Now, Paul first explains the purpose of these two gifts. Tongues, he explains, is the gift for dealing with people who have not yet heard the gospel or who do not yet believe. And the the most notable example we can remember is this amazing experience that so many uh, early Jews had in the city of Jerusalem listening to Peter testify of Christ on the day of Pentecost. And they all heard his sermon that day in their own tongue. And they were amazed. They thought, what is going on? Is this, have they been drinking? And then obviously, Peter pointed out, drinking can explain the fact that you're hearing me in your own language. You you can't lay it at at the door of anything but a miracle from God. The interesting thing about this is that Paul describes the the church in Corinth and other churches, he describes their experience around tongues as being very commonplace and very familiar with this gift. In fact, it would be regular. It would be almost weekly for them to speak in tongues and interpret in tongues. To the point where he says, if someone comes in and sees you speaking in tongues and doesn't quite get how this all works, they're going to think that something's wrong with you. Uh, This is one of the warnings that he gives in chapter 14. And as a, as a modern-day Christian, as a modern-day believer in the same gifts of the Spirit as Paul believed in, we, I personally read this, and you might read this. We read this and we think, well, where is our gift of tongues? Why isn't this happening for us? And there are churches that focus very heavily on the gift of tongues. But I would say, consider their history. If you've ever asked yourself this question, consider the history of the saints in Corinth. Many of them were originally converted on that first day of the Pentecosts, and therefore, for them, it wasn't such a matter of faith anymore. The first time they experienced this miraculous gift, then they would have taken that with them wherever they went. They probably experienced it again on the first visit of an apostle to their home, and or on their next visit to Jerusalem. And therefore, for them, their faith had become a perfect knowledge and for the gift of tongues to reappear became easier and easier each time. And this is how uh, miracles can abide, right? The, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, progresses in faith until the perfect day, and their light increased. Nevertheless, Paul's point is well taken here. The, the gift of tongues is for those who don't yet believe. For those who do believe, that it's, it's for a missionary to arrive. It's primarily a missionary gift. And in fact, Paul at one uh, point says, I give thanks that I have spoken tongues more than all of you. And, and we might read that and think Paul is trying to show these people that he knows more than them. And I don't read it that way, even though the translation tends to make it that way. I, I sort of regard that as an artifact of translation. What Paul is saying is, I give thanks that I've been able to experience this gift and this should show you that it is a gift uh, that is primarily to support missionary work. So when I arrive to somewhere where there's no one who can translate for me, and there's no one who truly understands the, the message that I'm about to impart that also speaks the language of the people that need to hear it, then the gift of tongues is there to make up the difference. Now today we do experience the gift of tongues. However, the, the, by far the vastly more common manifestation of the gift of tongues is for missionaries to quickly learn a new language that they've been called to learn. And the interesting thing is there are members of the church in almost every language, and therefore it's not necessary for God to reveal himself so miraculously as to instantly and simultaneously translate the speech of one person to another. 
uh, one, this is perhaps true, perhaps not, but it's worth thinking about. I think one of the principles that governs miracles in, in God's view is, does the miracle, is there a simpler way for this purpose to be accomplished? And what way that it can be accomplished blesses the greatest number of people? And so if, if a teacher and an interpreter blesses two people, then it seems more likely that God would accomplish his goal of imparting the truth in that way. Next, Paul talks about the gift of prophecy. And prophecy, when we use the word prophecy nowadays, we're generally talking about somebody foretelling the future. But prophecy in the New Testament, it, even though the New Testament is Greek, remember, this is coming from Paul who, who grew up in the Jewish tradition. And so the word prophecy is going to take its meaning from the same tradition that existed in the Old Testament, which is a prophet that many times there are several prophets. It's not the president of the church necessarily. It's not a president of some organization. A prophet is a person who has been called of God to deliver a message, to deliver his word, to speak on his behalf. That's what a prophet is. And it may mean, it doesn't of necessity mean they don't foretell the future. So it may mean foretelling the future. It may mean promising either a blessing or a curse from God, depending on the choices of man. So delivering a warning. It almost always in the Old Testament included some form of warning because they were very rarely accomplishing all their, or keeping walking in all of their covenants that they had made. And it could involve teaching, simply teaching the principles of the gospel. So prophets could do all of these things. So when Paul talks about the gift of prophecy, that's what he's talking about, is somebody whom the Spirit directs to speak on behalf of God. And prophecy, Paul explains, is a gift for those who already believe. So on the one hand, the the Corinthians had a lot of faith, and on the other hand, they're relying on this spiritual gift that actually is meant to support those who do not yet believe. And they're neglecting the greater gift, which is prophecy, speaking when under the influence of the Holy Ghost to those in, in imparting wisdom about God to those who already believe. So this, this chapter is primarily about the relative strengths and weaknesses of these two gifts. And Paul obviously believes that speaking in tongues is wonderful. But he says, I would rather have you speak five words that impart wisdom than 10,000 words in a tongue that nobody can understand. Joseph Smith made a similar point. He said, if there's anybody speaking in tongues, then you can know if it's of God if somebody can also stand up and interpret it, and then you're all edified by the experience. But if somebody's speaking in tongues, there is no interpreter. This didn't come from God, because God, when he performs a miracle, it's meant to convey wisdom. And that's the, that's the kind of the point, that's the main idea of chapter 14. I think it's worth mentioning again here an idea that we, I spent a fair amount of time on last week, but I'm going to mention it again because Paul mentions it again. And the, these are the verses 34 and 35 where Paul says a couple of times, let your women keep silent in the church, churches for it is not permitted unto them to speak. I'm not quoting from it, but I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and this, I, I'm ashamed to say the first time I was shown this verse, I snickered. Uh, a little bit. I can't remember how old I was, but uh, I thought it was humorous. And I now look back and I realize that uh, this is such an inappropriate reaction to this verse. First of all, because uh, so many of our sisters feel like, not only do they feel like the attitude of the men in church is such that 
they would snicker at a verse like this, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't read that verse and think, wow, this verse has got to be painful for fully half of the population in this church to read, to feel like their voice is not valued in church. And secondly, imagine, if you will, brethren, how painful it is for a woman to walk into church and to think, not only do the men in church not think that I'm worth listening to, or think that this kind of verse would be worth laughing at, but that God himself doesn't think that I'm worth hearing. How painful that must be to really believe that God doesn't want your voice to be heard would be so unbelievably painful and would make it hard to continue to come to church. And so I, I want to, again, I want to, I want to give some explanations for what I think Paul might have been meaning. And secondly, I want to talk about how we would express uh, the, the positive ideas that are kind of hidden, buried in this, in this passage today. First of all, did Paul actually mean that women were not permitted at all to speak in church? It's almost certain that the answer is no. And the reason I say that is because earlier in chapter 11, Paul explicitly says, when women are prophesying, they should cover their heads. Men should uncover their heads, and women should cover their heads, right? So when they're praying or prophesying, This meant that there was a time when it was appropriate for women to do this and to speak and to prophesy. And therefore, um, let's look at this word silent, first of all, which is sigau in Greek. It appears twice, uh, two other times in this chapter. Both times, once if if you are speaking in tongues and there's no one to interpret, you should remain silent, sigau. And another time, if you are prophesying but someone else also stands up to prophesy, then you should be silent and everyone take their turn. Uh, so a prophesying meeting is almost like a, what we would call today a fast and testimony meeting, perhaps more dramatically visited by the Spirit, but perhaps not. And uh, everyone was to get a chance to give, to share what the Spirit was revealing to their hearts. So we can see from that that the word sigao for silence is sort of carries with it a conditional nature when the time is appropriate, you should, inappropriate to speak, you should be silent. Now, that being said, it's undeniable that Paul singles out women for being silent in a way that he does not single out men. Latter-day Saints have an additional insight here because the Joseph Smith translation translate the word speak. It is not permitted to women to speak in church. He, translated, he translates it twice, both in verse 34 and 35, as to rule. It is not per- permitted to women to rule in church. And that gets us a little closer to where we would like to be. We would like to feel like women, women's voices are valued and they are permitted to speak in church and they're equal to men, right? And I, I do believe we will get there. We're going to talk about it just a few minutes longer. Uh, but the first thing I'm going to do is uh, pull in another verse which expresses a similar idea. And that's 1 Timothy 2, Chapter 2, verse 12, suffer not, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. So teaching, speaking, and ruling or usurping authority are all joined together. Uh, it seems very clear from the context of this chapter that what's happening in the church meetings in Corinth is that there are people who are valuing the sound of their own voice over the, the pure joy of sharing in the Spirit and hearing the Word of God. Uh, in fact, right before these two verses, verse 33, we get the title of our lesson, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And the point is, there is a 
lack. There is a gap in leadership in the church in Corinth. And so if we, if we take the Joseph Smith translation here at face value, what Paul is trying to address is that the lack in leadership in the church in Corinth is making it difficult for people to feel the Spirit and all be heard, and for the gifts of the Spirit, as valid as they are and as miraculous as they are, to actually have their intended pur- purpose, which is to communicate wisdom and to foster learning and understanding through the Spirit. But again, Paul here has singled women out in a way that he didn't single men out to hold their silence or to, in some way, not have the same recognition as men had. And earlier, the the justification that Paul gave for this was the fact that women were created from man, not man from woman. And also, we, we learned in chapter 11, Paul said, if anyone has a problem with my rationale, just just observe that this is not the custom of any of our churches. So he explicitly says, this is a cultural thing for us. And I, I, don't, I don't know that he would have seen that as undermining his own argument. But now, because we're so far removed from that culture, we can look at it and say, this doesn't seem to be an eternal principle. Paul explicitly said, this is our custom, so we should all respect it. And therefore, because it's not our custom today, we don't necessarily need to say, this custom carries the force of law. What we, what we can do is look at his rationale. Now, I spent some time last week talking about the idea of a help meet and, and defining that term, azer konegdo, right? The, instead of somebody who is a servant, azer konegdo means a suitable companion. A help is, can also be translated as a strength or even a savior, someone who provides help that is a salvation to the one helped. And konegdo can mean someone who is perfectly suited. So a suitable companion is a good translation, but I wanted to bring in today, I wanted to bring in the idea of opposition in all things. So Lehi gave this wonderful discourse in the Book of Mormon about how man could not have been happy without misery, and he could not have known good without evil. And the idea that we know joy, we learn joy, we learn what joy is by knowing suffering, is central to the understanding of why it's necessary to live in a fallen world. Now, those sets of opposites, they have one that has a greater moral value and one that has a lesser moral value. Obviously, good is of high moral value, and evil is worthless morally. Now, men and women are also contrasted in this same way. Nevertheless, one of them doesn't have a greater or lesser moral value than the other. It's an opposite. Konegdo gives the idea that they are opposites. It's not just that it's a suitable companion. It's man has now received a companion, a help, a savior that is his opposite, almost like looking in a mirror and seeing a reflection or the example we gave last week of two wings of an airplane. One, the right wing is the opposite of the left wing. The If you had two right wings, the plane would quickly crash to the ground. So man's opposite by whom he is known right? We, we know joy by feeling pain, but we also know pain by feeling joy. Now, which of these is the man and the woman? The, the, the parallel between joy and pain is not meant to be made, but the point is that men and women are opposite to each other, and therefore they know each other by knowing the other. How do we recognize the particular traits of man and the roles of man? By observing the traits of women and the roles of women, and vice versa. We know the roles of women and the traits of women by observing a man. For this reason, uh, in the recent uh, 
clarification of the church's doctrine on same-sex marriage, uh, one of the most striking phrases for me was, fathers and mothers are both essential and neither is replaceable. I'm not quoting again, I'm paraphrasing. But the point is that we need both. And men and women learn so much from each other, right? We, as we're meant to be together, we're meant to find one of our opposites so that we can learn, look, women communicate differently from men. Men understand differently from women. And therefore, children, as they grow up, they get examples from either sex. And both of these perspectives are totally irreplaceable. By far, our most important roles in this life are gender roles, father and mother. Father is the title by which our Heavenly Father has chosen to be known more than any other title. So I guess my final point to all of the, this discussion about gender roles is this. We do have roles as men and women, and the fact that there are roles that are associated with our sex does not mean that we're not equal. Uh, I, I did a, just a tiny bit of research on this and came up with a ton of reinforcing scriptures and general conference talks to support this view. The first uh, that I would mention is called Equality Through Diversity, and this is from a conference that I've mentioned before, the October Conference in 1993. Uh, In this case, it's uh, Elder Ballard's talk, Equality Through Diversity. talks about how men and women are, are meant to be absolutely equal before God, even though we have different roles. And there's nothing wrong with having different roles. The fact that we talk about roles has been used to alternately make men feel like they get to rule or to make women feel like they have to be subservient. But neither of those are true. Men and women have the roles, first and foremost, of father and mother. And though both of those roles are parents, they are not both the same. One other quick example that I would give is the uh, in the October of 79 women's fireside in September, just before General Conference, President Kimball was slated to speak, and he actually prepared a talk on equality titled The Role of Righteous Women. And part of this talk was a quote by Elder John A. Widsoe from 1942. Quote, The place of woman in the church is to walk beside the man, not in front of him nor behind him. In the church there is full equality between man and woman. The gospel, which is the only concern of the church, was devised by the Lord for men and women alike. That So this is a very old doctrine and it's very well established, and it is also 100% true. And as a final proof of the idea that God did not, did absolutely not intend women to be silent in church, I offer the fact that President Kimball, from his hospital bed, unable to deliver this talk in October of 1979, or in September of 1979, sent his wife Camilla to read his words in his stead. Now, he could have chosen any of the First Presidency or the Quorum of the Twelve to deliver his talk, but instead he chose his wife and companion. And in so doing, remember, the word prophecy in the Old Testament sense is to, is to speak the words that God would have you speak and deliver them to his people. And in that sense, he made his wife a prophet that day to all the people, to all the women of the church, They heard her voice, and they heard the words of a prophet, and they heard the words of God. And so this is proof positive that there were cultural aspects to what Paul was saying that are not eternal aspects of the gospel, that women are somehow less than. So sisters, I want to once again encourage you to believe that. And also, I wanted to mention it again because 
It comes up a couple more times in the New Testament, and I'm not going to keep giving this talk every time. These are the two times I'm going to bring it up. And so when we, when we actually get around to covering the uh, first epistle of Timothy, I'm not going to have this discussion again, but please refer to these as often as you need to because it's so important. It's so important for men to remember that it's, this is a painful subject for many women because, uh, as I mentioned, not just to feel like half of your fellow churchgoers don't respect your voice and your contribution as much as they respect their own, but that God himself, the idea that God himself might not want your contribution as much or want your thoughts or your voice as much is so painful. And so we should counter that idea because it is actually not a true idea. And we should also be very empathetic to those who have felt that particular pain and promote healing in order to, as Paul uh, stressed in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, in order to feel the contributions from some other part of the body of Christ, uh, we should humble ourselves in order to receive all of the contributions that need to come and not just our own. Okay, that's chapter 14. We're going to skip chapter 15 for now because that's the bulk of the lesson. We're going to talk briefly about chapter 16. Um, and I'm going to mention just a couple of things that are interesting, but there's not a lot of doctrine in chapter 16. It's basically Paul saying, uh, when I come, I, I want, I'm hoping to take the money that you're collecting for the poor and take it to Jerusalem. One interesting thing about that is just to mention, he says, look, don't don't wait until I come and then try to collect all the money at once. Please be putting it aside. Um, we've, we've given you this assignment that you can raise money for the poor in Jerusalem, the poor saints, and you should give of your money to those less fortunate, as we still do today in the church. However, don't try to wait and then collect it all at once, but be putting it aside. This, this is a, a principle still active in the principle of tithing, that we should pay when to pay our tithing and pay our offerings when we get paid and not try to come up with them at the end of the year and gather it all and then do it in one big lump sum because it's going to be a lot more difficult. And in so doing, we also give God the opportunity to bless us consistently. And Paul spends the rest of chapter 16 recommending other teachers to them, admonishing them, again, to have charity in all things. In verse 13, he says something that's interesting. He says, quit you. Uh, make sure that you quit you like men. And this is, a, this is a reference to an Old Testament scripture, 1 Samuel, in my opinion, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9, where the Philistines are actually admonished before a battle to quit, quit yourselves like men, twice in that verse. And men in that verse has the meaning of, if you're like a man, you're valiant, you're brave. And so what Paul is saying in this verse, when, when he says, quit you like men, what he means is behave yourselves with courage. It's going to take courage to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one more interesting thing that I'll point out in verse 22, Paul says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. And if you read this, you might think, what the heck does that mean? Obviously, you've got to read this in another translation to understand what's going on. First of all, we know the word anathema. It actually comes from, both of these words come from Aramaic, but anathema has made its way into English. It originally meant uh, set apart or sacred, but it's come to mean cursed. So let him be anathema means, obviously he used, Paul used it in this sense as well. Um, John, the revelator, said in the book of Revelations, if anyone adds to the revelations that are found in this book, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And 
Paul is saying it in the same way. If somebody's not going to love Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, accursed. And then Maranatha can be translated in various ways. Uh, the Lord has come, or the Lord is nigh, the Lord is near, uh, or, O Lord, come. So most of the time this is translated. If anyone lo- doesn't love Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. In other words, what Jesus expressed in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. However, uh, I was just trying to read this as many different ways as I could, and, and this particular interpretation occurred to me. I thought it was very interesting. It, I heard an echo to the, the verse found in Malachi, where uh, Malachi says, I will send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that he may turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. If not, I should smite the, the earth with a curse. Now, Joseph Smith had this same verse quoted to him by the prophet Moroni when Moroni appeared to them to him as a young man of 17. But when Moroni quoted this verse, he said, I will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest the earth be utterly wasted at his coming. Now, knowing that that is how uh, Joseph Smith received one of the final verses of the Old Testament, I'm going to read this again and translate the word slightly differently. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, or in other words, if any man does not turn his heart to the Father, let him be utterly wasted at the Lord's coming. Isn't that fascinating? That the, here in uh, the end of the, the very end of this first epistle to the Corinthians, he's saying the same thing. And I think this is actually uh, Paul's conscious calling forth of the idea expressed in Malachi, even though I don't see any footnotes or cross-references to Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, or to Joseph Smith history, chapter 1, verse 39. But I encourage you to read those and just ponder on that a little bit. Basically, what uh, Paul is saying is what Malachi said, which is, uh, we need to turn our hearts towards the Father of our spirits, lest our souls or lest our earth be utterly wasted at his coming. Fascinating stuff. Which leads us to chapter 15. Now, chapter 15 continues this idea of prophecy from chapter 14. And, and basically, the point is, a prophecy is such an important gift, and it means the Lord is speaking through us. What will he say? Paul boils down all of our belief to this one principle, which is, we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, the thing that gave rise to this chapter was the fact that Paul had heard there were people who were preaching that the dead did not rise. You remember this was a popular belief among the Sadducees, and at one point Paul would use the fact that the Sadducees disagreed with the Pharisees about the resurrection. Remember before uh, he went to Rome, when he was in Jerusalem on trial, he pitted the Sadducees against the Pharisees by saying, Pharisees, I'm a Pharisee, and the Sadducees are, it's actually about the very resurrection itself that I'm being attacked, which is true. So here's Paul making this point years earlier to the Corinthians. He's saying it is the very fact of the resurrection that is central. It is so central to our faith. So first of all, if you preach, you Corinthians, if any of you are preaching that there is no resurrection, you're saying that Christ himself did not arise from the dead. Now, let's take a look at what that might mean. If Christ didn't arise from the dead, then everybody who's died in Christ 
believed and obeyed their whole lives in vain, and all of our faith is vain. Or as he says in verses 16 through 20, if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only, this is, this is a wonderful verse, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And what he says uh, later is, that he, he brings uh, the commonly known Greek philosophy of Epicureanism to the forefront and says, if there was no resurrection, we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is the, the hallmark of Epicureanism, is that there is no afterlife. Let's just enjoy ourselves. Let's, let's seek pleasure while we can, because that's really the meaning of life. And Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, you might as well be an Epicurean, because there really is no meaning of life beyond momentary pleasure and gratification. Now, still in verse 20, he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. So verse 16 through 20, he says, uh, it's, it's a logical syllogism, right? He's, he's making a logical case. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, if there is no resurrection from the dead, Christ didn't rise from the dead, and then all of our belief just goes away. But Christ is risen from the dead. And here's how you can know. So after verse 20, from, from verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, Paul lists all of the different ways in which we can know that Christ is risen from the dead. One of the proofs that he gives that we'll talk a little bit more about is the fact that people do baptisms for the dead. Now why, in verse 29, he says, why would they do baptisms for the dead if there is no resurrection? Now in a modern Christian setting, that argument would be made in reverse. The, the way somebody would say it would be, we know that the that spirits, are they rise from the dead, and therefore, why shouldn't we baptize for the dead? We would use the resurrection, which is commonly believed, to prove the validity of the, the principle of baptizing for the dead, which is not commonly believed. But for Paul, it was exactly the reverse. The idea of baptizing for the dead was so commonly believed that Paul appeals to that belief to prove that everyone would be resurrected. And isn't that fascinating? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about how fascinating that is and why it's interesting in just a few minutes. But let's finish Paul's syllogism. So he makes the point, if we don't believe in resurrection, our whole faith falls apart. But we should believe in the resurrection because Christ is my testimony, my Paul's testimony, that Christ did rise from the dead. And here are all the proofs, here are all the evidences that you can have. First of all, the, the many people, the apostles and the uh, witnesses and the disciples of Christ who saw him rise from the dead, myself included, and at one point, 500 people saw Christ at one time. Now, this is in this chapter, this is the only account we have of Christ appearing before what is called the 500. But uh, Paul says many of these people are still alive, and presumably a lot of the saints in Corinth had met and talked to at least one person who had seen the resurrected Lord and felt the holes in his palm, in the palms of his hands and in his feet and his side, right, had seen the wounds of the crucifixion upon his body and borne witness that he was risen from the dead in an undeniable way. So each of these people had had a chance to talk to someone who'd had that experience. If no one else, we know that they talked to Paul, and Paul had had that experience three times. But presumably many people... 
Paul says, some of these people are still alive. Most of them are still alive. Some are dead, but most of them are still alive. So you know many people who've spoken to the resurrected Lord. That is a very powerful witness, by the way, because all of their stories are going to agree. They all saw Christ on the same occasion. And that is an irrefutable, if, if you were looking in a court of law, that is absolutely an irrefutable piece, a body of evidence that somebody is alive is for this many people to see and have the experience with that person. But Paul gives other evidences as well. And then uh, at the end of the verse, he concludes with this. So after he gives all that evidence, then he gives this wonderful word, therefore. Therefore, now that we know, now that we've established that Christ is alive, he's risen from the dead. Therefore, my beloved brethren, verse 58, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, believing in the resurrection is not optional. It has a powerful effect on how you will live your life. Because you believe in the resurrection, you're going to be steadfast, you're going to be unmovable, always abounding in good works. Believing in the resurrected Lord is crucial to enduring to the end. I want to read another verse from the Book of Mormon that, for me, really echoed this one. In uh, Mosiah chapter 5, this is the end of King Benjamin's address, and he's talking about the importance of centering our lives around Christ and letting him make us free and remembering to retain his name in our hearts. And at the end of, this is the very last verse, similar to Uh, the last verse of the chapter of of Paul talking about the resurrection. This is the last verse of King Benjamin's discourse. He says, Therefore, again, the same word, Therefore I would that ye should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works, that Christ the Lord God omnipotent may seal you his, that you may be brought to heaven, that you may have everlasting salvation and eternal life through the wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and in earth, who is God above all. A very similar verse and uh, something that is echoing the same testimony that resonates throughout the New Testament and in modern revelation, which is believing in Christ is going to make us better people. Though we are ultimately saved by grace, The choice to believe in him and believe in his resurrection has a powerful effect over how well we are able to walk in his footsteps. Now, I promised we'd talk a little bit about baptism for the dead. Um, It's interesting to find this verse. It's, It's a totally unexplained verse. We have absolutely no context for it, and we don't have a lot of historical background for what it meant for the Corinthians to baptize people for the dead. Now, I did a fair amount of research on this, and I was interested at the very end of it to find out that if you go on BibleHub.com, a website that I've recommended many times, and you look up this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29, and then you click on, I'm not asking you to read a bunch of different translations this time, what I'm asking you to do this time is click on either sermons or commentary, and under that verse you can read the collected works of well-known biblical scholars for maybe the last couple of hundred years at least. And anything notable that has been written about this verse will be collected there. And uh, so the interesting thing that you will find if you do this is that all of these scholars pretty much agree that the meaning of this verse is totally clear. 
it's obvious that the Corinthians are baptizing, are performing what are called proxy baptisms or vicarious baptisms for those who have passed on. Now, there are those who disagree with that interpretation, and basically all of the all of the places where they disagree, it's a very forced interpretation. For example, those who are baptized for the dead are new saints who are baptized to fill the place of old saints who have expired of old age or martyrdom, right? So those who are baptized for the dead are baptized into the place of the dead. It seems a forced reading of the passage. Or baptized for the dead means that you are baptized for Christ who is dead and then come alive. Somehow that means baptized for the dead. Or baptized for the dead means you are baptized for the dead person of sin that you used to be and now you're alive in Christ. Again, it's not actually accurate to the meaning of the words. Those who are most honest in these sermons and these commentaries, they admit the meaning of this verse is clear that somebody... And it's fairly common, it's a well-known practice, somebody in Corinth is being baptized vicariously for those who have passed beyond this life. The other thing that is agreed upon in this verse is that Paul does not decry the practice. He doesn't rebuke them for being baptized for the dead. He says he appeals to baptism for the dead as proof of the resurrection. And so it, it has somehow his tacit approval. Now, universally, whether these Christian scholars, these mainstream Christian scholars, have heard of the Latter-day Saint practice of vicarious baptism for the dead or not, they, they say that now, obviously, we know that baptizing people for the dead vicariously doesn't have any real effect. However, um, and then they go on to explain why they think Paul might have said this. And there are various ways in which they explain it, but all of them come to the conclusion that Paul actually was... Uh, did not believe in it, and that nobody really does this, and etc. But I want to talk a little bit about how important this verse is, and how clear it is, right? Well, I've already talked about how clear it is, but the fact that it's so clear should tell us something very interesting. Now, one thing I learned is that there was a practice among Jews around the time of Christ, and even a little bit before, and a little bit after, and something that is fairly well documented is that there were certain Jews who, if a loved one died in a state of what they considered to be non-ritual purification, in other words, they wouldn't have been pure in that moment to enter into the temple. Perhaps they'd gone near a dead body, or they'd touched blood, or some other similar means of becoming ritually impure, and they hadn't had the requisite seven days to wait and then bathe themselves or wash themselves, but instead had died, then a loved one would be ritually purified vicariously in their stead. Uh, And this practice involved, in the time of Jesus, it often involved immersion in water. Now, the law of Moses calls for washing yourself with water, but we know from archaeological evidence that around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem were many of what are called mikvot, or a mikvah is a a bathtub, a body of water, a cistern, just barely big enough to immerse one person. So it's now believed that these pilgrims that would come three times a year to Jerusalem to worship at the temple would stop at one of these mikvot and they would purify themselves by washing in water and immersing themselves in water. Now, something we know again from the Joseph Smith translation is that the practice of baptism was from the time of Adam, but 
We also have reason to believe that it was a lost practice, and therefore John's baptism, his method of baptizing people, and the fact that he baptized at all, would have been seen to many as, rather than a long-standing priesthood ordinance, it would have been more reminiscent of ritual purification. And it's a very appropriate symbol of that practice as well, but it's also obviously a long-standing priesthood ordinance. So there are those modern Christians who believe that the ancient Corinthians got this practice from Jews who were ritually purifying their departed relatives uh, vicariously, and therefore thought, well, I have a loved one who's passed on, and they came up with this practice their own rather than having it revealed to them through prophets. Uh, I I have a loved one who's passed on, and I believe that I can be baptized vicariously in his stead. And there are those who believe that they were performing baptisms uh, for the dead in a totally authorized way that was sanctioned by the prophet. We don't actually know 100% for sure. One thing that we do know is that they weren't doing this in some sort of temple analogous to a modern temple. The temple for ancient Jews, and by extension ancient Christians, was the temple in Jerusalem. And in spite of the fact that uh, at the death of Christ, the the veil of the temple rent from top to bottom, symbolizing perhaps the, the expiration or the withdrawal of priesthood keys from that building. We also know that early Christians continued to worship and especially pray around the temple. And therefore, that this to them was still the house of God, the one place, and there was no baptismal font there. They didn't do uh, baptisms for the dead in the temple the same way we do them today. However, you may also know that when Joseph Smith first taught the doctrine of baptism for the dead in August of 1840, uh, that practice began almost immediately and continued for about a year in the Mississippi River. And um, I don't know what the the stance of the modern church is, maybe some of you would, uh, as to whether those original baptisms were valid. I, I can presume that they, by and large, they probably were, especially if records were kept. Uh, and, and Joseph Smith, actually, he rebuked the saints later for not keeping accurate records. He said, if you don't keep a record, then how can we? How can God honor it? It's from the books that we shall be judged. And um, so many of them did have to be repeated because they, there was no record kept. But for those baptisms that were performed in the Mississippi River for which there were records kept, uh, I'm not sure, but my belief would be that those were considered valid baptisms, although not performed within a temple. And therefore, it's possible that the ancient Corinthian saints were doing something similar, performing baptisms for the dead, perhaps in the sea or in a river nearby, and they were totally valid, vicarious ordinances. One thing I can say is that every Christian in the world is not only familiar with, but absolutely believes in vicarious ordinances for the dead. One of the Uh, And that is because that is what the atonement was. At its very core, the the number one belief, and that is also what the resurrection of Christ is, the very topic of this chapter, uh, is the resurrection of Christ, which is a vicarious ordinance for the dead. What could be a more archetypical ordinance for the dead than resurrection from the dead? And Christ did this vicariously for all of us so that we could all receive it one day. And every Christian believes this. As Paul said, it is absolutely crucial to our belief to believe in vicarious ordinances for the dead. And yet, uh, no Christian, no mainstream Christian uh, today is willing to say that Paul was absolutely right uh, 
and that we should believe in vicarious baptism for the dead. One of the arguments used against the practice of vicarious baptism for the dead is that the dead have no choice in the matter, and choice is so key as to whether we will uh, choose to believe in Christ, and this is often used by those who think that the profession of belief is the only important thing. Profession of belief and the receipt of baptism, that's all we have to do. And because there's no choice involved, then baptism for the dead can't possibly have any efficacy over their eternal soul. Now, this is so interesting because in the vicarious ordinances that we do all universally accept, namely the atonement and the resurrection, there's also no choice involved. Christ performed those ordinances without consulting you or me. The choice is whether we accept them, and that will have an effect over whether this, uh, this grace can enter into our lives. So why wouldn't that be the case with vicarious baptism for the dead as well? We don't have a choice over whether somebody is vicariously baptized for us, no. But we do have a choice as to whether the grace from that ordinance enters into our lives. Why am I spending so much time on one little verse from chapter 15 when the whole verse is about something as glorious as resurrection? Why am I focusing so much on baptism for the dead? And the reason is this, to me personally, I think baptism for the dead and, uh, by extension, vicarious ordinances for the dead are one of the strongest arguments for the veracity, the truth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Because most Christians believe that accepting Christ in some way, uh, most commonly through baptism, is essential to our salvation in the kingdom of God. And yet, they also know that well over 90% of people that have lived on earth have never received baptism and never accepted Christ as their Savior during their lives. And therefore, what they think about God is very, to me, almost exactly what the Zoramites encountered by Alma thought about God when they marched up to the top of that high place, that Ramiumptum, and said, God, we thank you that we are better than the people who are outside of this church. And we thank you that you've given us this thing to believe and that you've made us better than our brethren. And we're so grateful that we've received the blessed truth and that we are the ones who are chosen to be saved and no one else will be saved. What, a, what an unmerciful God it must be who would choose some people, we, we can only presume, based on some arbitrary criteria, and then condemn other people to an everlasting suffering based on criteria equally arbitrary. That would not be a just God, and it would not be a merciful God, and would certainly not be a loving God, but it would be a capricious God, a vengeful God, a spiteful God, and a cruel God. In my personal opinion, and I'm not uneducated, I'm not the most informed person on gospel topics, but in my personal opinion, This is the doctrine that allows us to believe in the loving nature and the mercy of our Father in heaven, is the fact that he allows us to engage in vicarious ordinances for those who have passed on. And the the name baptism for the dead can be a little off-putting the first time someone hears it because it sounds morbid, baptizing for the dead, what's going on? But the truth is, it shows the mercy and the love of God for all of his children throughout all time. We know that the Atonement of Christ has effect 
over the people who lived before Christ. We know that it has effect over the people who would come later. There's no reason why choice couldn't enter into the matter whether we accept the atonement, even though the atonement already happened, or even though the atonement was yet to happen. That atonement could still have effect over the life of the person who chose to believe in Christ. Why then? Does time matter when all of a sudden when someone needs to receive a saving ordinance and enter into the kingdom of God forever, all of a sudden God is now bound by time and totally unable to redeem his children? So often as Latter-day Saints, we fail to see, we fail to appreciate the power of this doctrine alone to set us apart from almost every other Christian church. And the other churches that share this belief, they also are derivative churches from the church that Joseph Smith founded. There are no mainstream churches at all, major churches, that preach in vicarious ordinances for the dead other than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is the power. That is the uniqueness. Along with living prophets and the restoration of the Book of Mormon, that is what makes us totally unique. And in my opinion, it is what allows us to appreciate the true attributes of God, which are justice and mercy together. I just want to mention a few more things about chapter 15. And then I'll close. First of all, if you are a fan of... Handel's Messiah, like I am, you will recognize that there are many of the individual pieces of the Messiah whose words come from this chapter. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet shall sound, and we shall be changed." But now is Christ risen from the dead. This is part of the, I know that my Redeemer liveth from Job. And then that particular number also has the words from Corinthians, but now is Christ risen from the dead. So I know that my Redeemer liveth, yet in my flesh shall I see God. But now is Christ risen from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. One of the most glorious pieces of music ever written, and the words taken from the King James Version of the Bible so many of them taken from this very chapter because it is a powerful witness of the the reality of the resurrection of our savior now paul makes a comparison and contrast and this is very powerful between adam and christ and he says first of all he calls adam in this verse he calls him the first adam meaning he's the first man he's the first image in which we are and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compare and contrast what Paul says about the first Adam and then what, who he calls the last Adam, which is Christ. First of all, as in Adam, or in the first Adam, all die. In other words, Adam, through Adam came the fall, and therefore we all became, in our earthly life, we became corruptible. We knew that we would die. So as in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. We will all come back to life. We are in the image of the first Adam in life, and in the resurrection we shall be in the image of Christ. The first Adam was made a living soul of the earth. He's earthy. But the second Adam, Christ, was made a quickening spirit. And quickening means somebody who makes other people alive. We have borne the image of the earthy. We shall bear the image of the heavenly. We are corruptible. 
but the corruptible corruptible cannot put on incorruption. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so therefore we have to be changed. We are planted like a seed is planted. And this is a powerful image because the, the experience of the Corinthians with death would have been that they become this body which is shriveled up and eventually is just bones. How could that be a glorified thing in the image of Christ? And what Paul says is, when you take the seed of a fruit and you put it in the ground, you cannot look at that seed and see the tree and the fruit that will come. You have no idea, you have no way to predict the, the glory and the shape that will arise from the workings of God in that seed. And that seed is our body. We are planted, Christ plants us as a seed. He plants our body and our spirit, and we might bear li- little resemblance to the tree that is to come. But he talks about celestial glory and terrestrial glory. And those two words actually just mean heavenly and earthly. So he's contrasting what Christ brings and what Adam brought. Both important and both in the image of God, but one totally unpredictable from our present state. In other words, now we are just like the seed of a shriveled old fruit. And then when we're resurrected, we're going to understand what it means to receive the glory of God because we'll be this tree welling up into eternal life that bears fruit forever. So if you want a powerful chapter in the Bible to study, it is this chapter, chapter 15. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When we accept and choose to believe in the resurrection of Christ, we will know that our labor is not in vain. And this knowledge will change us. Let that change operate in you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.